We welcome you to the media ministries of the Gathering Church in the Countryside YMCA of Mainville. As we love the Lord and each other, we're trusting that God would use us to plant a church in every YMCA around the world. To this end, would you join us? We meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. and in community groups throughout the week. As you listen to this resource, our prayer is that your love for Jesus would grow deep and your love for others would be seen and heard. You may be seated. Welcome to church. We are the gathering. My name is Mike. And um, prior to feeding God's people, God's word this morning, um, how appropriate of a song to sing uh, that we need you. Um, With this week, most of our students and teachers and uh, school administration starting school, um, what a great prayer. Um, Actually, uh, this morning, really each year, um, we devote some time um, in August to praying for those who are starting school. And I'd like to do that this morning. And so um, if we could just pause one more time and pray. Um, uh, Students, we're going to pray for you. Teachers will pray for you, uh, as well as um, uh, moms and dads that are homeschooling and uh, principals, administrators, we're praying for our leadership. And so um, let's pray now. Take a moment. This is a prayer written by Melissa Kruger from a book called Every Moment Holy. So this is for our children. Dear Jesus, you who promise to be with our kids always, We pray that you would be with them as they start school. Bless their going and their coming. Bless their learning and their playing. Protect their hearts from fear. Please keep them safe. Please give them good friends. Give them joy as they start their school day. And thank you, Lord, for loving them from head to toe. Here's a prayer for a little bit older kids, junior high, high school, college. Lord, you have promised to be with them always. You've promised to be with them this day as they begin their schoolwork. Lord, keep them in health, we pray, and keep them from harm in all that they do and say. May they love you with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And may they love their neighbor as themselves. So that they might fulfill your promise and their calling in their life as a student. Let's pray for our parents. Lord, you have promised to guide them through the wilderness and protect them through the storm. And we ask today that you would make us make parents wise where we cannot see clearly the way forward make us strong in the face of weakness and make possible what to us seems impossible so that we might joyfully entrust ourselves and our children into your tender care in these trying and troubling times our prayer for teachers 
Lord, you have called and equipped our teachers in our community, and we pray for them today as a church. Watch over them, provide for them, guide for them, sustain them. May you be their sun and shield so that they might do the work that you have entrusted to them and sense your care in these uncertain times. And for our administrators and counselors and staff, Father, you've promised wisdom to all who ask it. And we pray today for school administrators that you would grant them clarity of mind, unity of spirit, strength of will, a heart of wisdom, and the gift of your truth-bearing spirit, so that they might be enabled to make decisions that lead to flourishing of their teachers, staff, and students, and to the well-being of the whole community. And all God's people said, Amen. We will be praying for you continuously this week as you walk with God and start school. Students, are you ready? It'll be an awesome year. It'll be awesome. Well, let's begin our time together in the Word. Last week, we studied sola gratia, grace alone. And we, we talked about how grace was enough and sufficient for salvation and also for each day. Uh, for sanctification and growing in Christ. And as we're marching through these solas um, and studying the Reformation, um, it's been such a blessing to remind ourselves of what the gospel is. It's something that we should care deeply about that affects us in all aspects of life. And something that we should care about also is kids going to children's ministry. So, kids, at this time, you may be dismissed. Thank you. Thank you. Here's something that, um, that is, I, when I was living in Texas, this is something that I learned um, that people care a lot about. Um, I remember um, one day hearing on the news that one of the Starbucks close to us um, got shut down without any warning uh, to its employees or to the uh, people who were regulars. And the regulars were so mad that they stormed the Starbucks, kind of like in you know, the storming of the Bastille in France, right? They stormed the Starbucks and um, like graffitied it, banged on the windows, banged on the door, and caused damage to it. So, so much so that, that, I mean, they just wanted their caffeine, right? Um, that was something that, that people cared dearly about. Uh, I, I think back, even on this past week, what's something that, like, like got my emotions a little higher than normal? I, I feel like I'm a fairly steady guy, but, like, what got me going this week? My kids recently... Um, uh, have started this like practical joke while they drive with me. And when they sit shotgun in August heat, they turn on my seat heater when I'm not looking. And all of a sudden, after like five, ten minutes of riding in the car, my bottom's on fire. And I feel like my skin is going to fall off, right? And like at first it was like, <laughs> and now it's like, everybody stop doing that, my bottom, right? Like, that's something that I, I'm, I'm like, wow, I really care about the comfort of my backside, right? 
And then when it comes to this issue today, sometimes we approach it, approach it pretty casual. And we're like, ah, whatever. And so today, I, I want to encourage you guys. What we're discussing um, is way more important than how your backside feels, or if you got caffeine in you or not. Um, really, it is a matter of life and death, and the implications are massive in your life on an everyday basis. This is, this is the thing to care about this morning. Uh, this morning, we're talking about faith alone. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Galatians chapter 2, verses 16. Galatians, if you're uh, familiar or new to, if you're new to the, to the scriptures, it's far to the right. Um, if you're using a phone, you can just flip on down there. But far to the right, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. It's a letter that Paul wrote, small epistle. And this one is especially on the gospel. Well, they all are, but this one um, I'm going to highlight today. Chapter 2, verse 16. This is a great verse that talks about faith alone. It says this. This is the word of the Lord. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Does everyone see that? So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is a fantastic passage for um, um, teaching by faith alone. It's like a slam dunk. I'd like you to turn to the right, though, and I want to show you one more verse. This is James chapter 2, verses 24. James chapter 2, verse 24. This is the half-brother half of Jesus. He was, uh, tradition has him called Old Camel Knees James because he was such a man of prayer that his knees uh, were, were calloused over because he was always on his knees. Listen to what he says about faith and how a person is justified. Ready? You see that a person is justified by works <laughs> and not by faith alone. I know, I feel the same way. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Okay, so church, what in the world is going on? I mean, here we have James literally just defying um, the sermon title, Faith Alone, defying the sola fide. Uh, like, we, he, this is scripture-inspired, word of God stuff. And here we have this sacred writing telling us that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. This is something to care about, um, that we should, we, our senses should um, raise above and beyond how we feel about coffee and how we feel about seat heaters. Um, back in the Reformation, people um, heard this 
and gave of their lives for this. They were martyred for the essence of what faith means. What is the nature of saving faith? They read this verse and they said, we have got to figure out what this means. So I wonder, I mean, would you, would we react in the same way today? If we hear the nature of how we're justified is faith and works or faith alone, would we be willing to give our lives? Would we be willing to go under the knife to take a bullet for this particular doctrine because we believe so much in it, because we, we are not willing to put up with the ramifications if it is actually faith plus works. There would be too much for us. Life would not be worth living if that was true. I'm trying to just raise the level of concern. So, church, what do you say we go after this one with zeal? We, we figure this one out. We dive deeply in God's word, and we trust him. Shall we? Let's go for it. Keep your finger in James. We're going to live in there for our time. It, it really does appear at first glance that Paul and Galatians and James in, ja in chapter 2 are, contra are, are contrary, doesn't it? I think one of the best uh, pictures that I could give you guys this morning for a helpful understanding of this is Paul and James as soldiers. And they're standing back to back, and they both have guns, and they're both defending the gospel. And they've got different enemies. I think that's a really helpful picture. Paul he, in Galatians, is firing at a, at a doctrine called legalism. A belief that says that you can earn your way to heaven. And if you do enough good works, then you can achieve, or you can climb that holy hill until you get to the top and reach God. And Paul, in Galatians, is blasting that. While James, on the other side, is defending the pure gospel against what is called antinomianism. Anti, no, and then nomian, from the word nomos, which is law. Anti-law, this belief that says, yes, yes, faith is something that you just decide, but it doesn't really change you. It doesn't have any transformative power in your life. Just make a decision, and then you can live however you want. You don't have to follow the law. You don't have to do anything. It's just... Faith equals a get-out-of-hell-free card. And James is like, I'm pretty sure I'm going to blast that because that is not at all biblical saving faith. It would be the idea of, of coming to the Scriptures, reading, reading Christ's commands to his church and saying, nah, he doesn't really mean that. We're not called to do that. Just place your faith in him, and we'll, you'll see him one day. Do you see the diminishing effect of that sort of definition of faith? It's not at all biblical. Let me just, let me just tell you about how Jesus paints the picture in John 15. Stay in James. John 15, Jesus calls himself the true vine, 
And he talks about the kind of, of faith that he gives to his followers. It would almost be like you got two sticks. You hold up one stick and it's just bare. It's nothing but a stick. And then you hold up one and it's got leaves on it and it's got fruit. And Jesus holds up both of them and he goes, you see this stick that's got nothing on it? I don't give that kind of faith. This is the kind of faith I give, fruit-bearing faith. And I, 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 I trim this vine, and I, and, and I take this fruit, and I mature. And, but this, this is for the fire. This is John 15. And so all we're going to do today is ask two questions from James. What do we learn from, about faith from James and then what are the implications on our life as we study this wonderful concept of faith alone? So let's begin our time. What do we learn from James? Let's particularly look at verses 14 through 17 in chapter 2. I'll read it for us. This is the word of the Lord. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says, emphasis on says, he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The first thing that we learn from James is that there is a claiming faith. If you're taking notes, write down, number one, there's a claiming kind of faith. So James argues that on the last day, works doesn't save. You can't be saved by works. Those who claim to have faith but lack good works aren't saved. They're just claiming to have faith. James 2.14. James, he compares such faith to words of love and comfort given to someone who is cold and who's hungry. Right? Hey, I'm hungry, I'm cold. And you know what? Be warm, be filled. These, these words spoken with no action, he says, that's not the kind of faith that God gives. They're meaningless and unaccompanied faith, unaccompanied action to feed or to clothe a person in need is a result or a fruit of a person that doesn't actually have an alive faith. It's just one that claims faith. And his conclusion is one who says but does not do, that faith is dead. It's strange even to consider and, and call a faith dead because deadness can't have faith, right? Can't, when someone is dead, they can't lift their eyes up to heaven and, and trust and depend on Jesus for things. It's a, it's a dead thing. 
How can anything dead have faith? Dead things can't pretend. Yet here we have it in the scriptures that someone is claiming to have faith. Yet we know it's not saving faith. These are deep waters. It's a complex issue, but it's true. So there it is. We have a dead faith. It's a zombie. It's like the walking dead. People are walking around. They're talking like Christians. They're claiming to be Christians. They are wearing Christian t-shirts, bracelets, necklaces, crosses around their neck. But they don't have saving faith. To be clear, this is not a, a Christian who is struggling. This is one who claims only, but has no life, no fruit, therefore no faith, no saving faith. So the first thing that we learn from James is that there is such a faith, if we can say it like that, that is claiming only. This would be the true definition of nominalism, in name only. The second thing we learn from James is that we learn about an agreeing faith, one who agrees. Have you ever been in a conversation and you're like talking with the other guy or girl and they, the, the, what they say back is, yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. Have <laughs> you ever been in a conversation like that? Right? Like wives, what if husbands responded to you every time like that? I don't, I don't disagree. Wouldn't that be like such a vibrant marriage? <laughs> Your wife would be like, uh, like, shh, come on, sweetheart. Like, give me a little bit more something. Like, let me know you believe in it. Or, or give me a little bit of life. Will you just like disagree? What is that? Let me read from James 18 all the way through 26. Or, uh, forgive me, all the way through 20. And we're going to see um, an agreeing faith. Here we go, verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Watch this. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So this is another helpful understanding as we define faith and figure out what faith alone really means. Because here we see the demons, the verb to use is demons believe in God. And they even shudder. They have an accurate belief of God. They look at him, and they recognize a Trinitarian God. They know him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have in the Gospels the demons looking at him in the book of Mark and, and claiming, you are the Holy One of God. Were they wrong? No, they were right. Demons believe in God. They have a belief. Well, certainly we know that demons aren't going to be in heaven. What is their belief like? What is their faith like? 
We're saying this morning, it is an agreement to something that is factual. The demons have a mental assent. They know what is true, yet they're not Christians. They haven't been saved. They're not going to heaven. And so we're learning from James. He's trying to point out to us that there is this kind of like person out there, this kind of faith that just agrees to stuff intellectually. But he's not justified. He doesn't have saving faith. To be clear, James isn't denying that faith is the conduit that saves. He's not saying it's faith plus works. He's saying faith saves. But this is the kind of faith that God gives. He's rejecting a particular understanding of faith. Faith is this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with that. This fact, this fact, I, I don't disagree, so I guess I have faith. Again, James is saying, this is not saving faith. This is not what we're talking about. When we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Don't take my word for it, though. Just let your eyes glance on down to verse 21 and to 25. James takes two characters and he says, look at these guys. Look at how their faith has affected their works, has affected their life. It's totally transformed and changed, changed them. He says, look at Abraham, how he was justified by works in offering up Isaac. We know that, to, that Abraham had faith. How was his faith shown? He surrendered his only son. And Rahab, the prostitute, she, oh, he says it again, he's justified by works in receiving spies and protecting them from danger, verse 25. James is saying, hey friends, this is what faith does. You're not saved by it, but this is what it looks like, the essence of it. This is the exactly the kind of faith that God gives. And so we can say, as we're continuing to build out our robust understanding of faith, that dead faith not saving faith, but saving faith is actually includes the entire person. It includes the will and the emotions, the heart, such those that those that believe in Christ, they give of them themselves, their entire selves. Everything they have, they lay down at the foot of Jesus and they say, in Christ alone. Only he can save, and I give my all. Not just like bullet point. Yeah, yeah, I'll take that. So both the things that we learn, a claiming faith and this agreeing faith, claiming is dead. And the conclusion of the second one, if you just agree to it, James says it is useless. Both of those kinds of faith are not saving, and those are not the faith that God gives. So, what kind of faith does God give? 
What is saving faith then? And I would just say two things, okay? The first is a faith that repents. Theologians talk a lot about the actions of salvation and how it works. But I think a good way to remember it is, is a look to Christ. It is a movement, a, a motion towards Christ. And when you look at him, guess what? You're leaving your sins behind you, and it's called repentance. Okay? Repentance isn't a work. Oh, I've got I've to get good. I've got to get all clean before I get into the bathtub. That's an illustration that Hannah, um, when, when she became a Christian, my wife, it was, that was most meaningful to her. Because how, how she's wired is like, I've got to get everything right before I do something. And in salvation, she was struggling because she was like, I'm not good enough. I'm not perfect enough. I haven't done enough good in order to have God's affections look upon me and save me. And someone said, sweet. You're just trying to wash off before you get in the bathtub. You just got to get in the bathtub. And, and just this freeing like, feeling came over her. And that was the gospel. That was it. That Christ will forgive your sins. You don't have to forgive them yourself. And so when she looked to Christ, she left her sins. Did she still struggle? Ask someone else. I don't know. I'm her husband. You know, um, I know that I do. But when you look to the Lord, you don't, you don't go like this. Lord, I'm looking to you, but I'm so fascinated by my sin. I just love it so much, but I'm looking to you. Is that how it works? No, when you look to Christ, you look to him. And then as you behold him, this becomes more and more filthy and grotesque in your eyes and in your heart and in your affections. And you just continually leave it more and more and more. So to be clear, what is saving faith? It is a repentance. It is a turning from sin and a looking to God. The second thing, when we're trying to answer the question, what is saving faith then? It's a call to discipleship. So it's a look to Christ. It's a repentance, a leaving sin and looking at him. But it is a call also to discipleship. What do I mean? That when you are called, when you are beckoned, when you are drawn to God, it's a call to die, to submit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and to have a lifestyle that is holy and obedient unto him. Those words make churches nervous. It's chock full in the scriptures. To, to be clear and not to minimize this thing called faith, faith is not just, just prayer, prayer, or just walk the aisle, or like, just quick, 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 make a decision. Faith is an absolute surrender unto the Lord. A call to discipleship. To tell him, you're my master now, and I'm not my master anymore. I'm not the captain of my own ship. This is you now, and I'm going to live for you. That's faith. 
I remember an illustration that I once heard in high school. I, I haven't remembered it just until now, um, but I remember a, a youth pastor once was um, um, just calling his youth group to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And there was this guy in the youth group who had just like this long, cool hair, right? And he came down the aisle and the youth pastor, you may disagree with how he handled it. I have some tension in it, but let me just illustrate it, okay? He said, I don't think you're ready to come to Christ. And the, and the guy was like, no, I am, I am. He goes, okay, cut your hair. And he goes, no, no, I'm, I'm not gonna cut my hair. I won't do that. And he goes, okay. And next week, kid comes back and um, the, the youth pastor shares the gospel again. Kid comes down. I want him so bad. I, he's my, I, I just, I, I'll do anything. Great. Cut your hair, shave your head, and you can come to Christ, right? You, I mean, do you hear the tension a little bit? It's like third week, the guy, the kid comes back and he goes, I'll do anything and I'll cut my hair. And the youth pastor, pastor goes, you're ready. You can follow him. Like you'll, you'll, you'll do anything. Place your faith, bro. And the guy came to Christ. When did he come to Christ? I, I don't know. First week, second week, third week. But the, the illustration was that the youth pastor is saying, you've got you've to leave everything and be willing to follow him. And he was getting at the idol of his heart there. Theologically, maybe to, to, to bring a, a summary to this idea of saving faith and how the interplay with works um, or to, to relieve some tension, I could say, in the room would be this. This is how the reformers summarized it. You're not saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. Right? Or if you wanted to use terms of works in there, it's you're not saved by faith plus works, but saving faith works. So, Question number two, what are the implications of saving faith? Is this some like just uh, theological dissertation that we just walk away from and go, oh, okay, we got it right. Or you, what on a daily basis, how can this affect my life? Okay. Uh, number one, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, since, since this is a historical theology series, we got to just milk all we can out of Martin Luther during this time, okay? So Martin Luther, he became a monk. There was this like big storm outside, and he prayed to um, the, the mother of Mary. So he said, Saint Anna, like, if, if you save me from this storm, I'll become a monk, all right? He survived the storm, becomes a monk, and he is like devoted monk 2.0. He's got, he, he's like, all the efforts are there, okay? And he would go um, into the confessional, one of the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church, and he would stay in the confessional for six hours at a time, being incredibly thorough and nitpicky about all his sins, right? He would even confess his pride of being thorough about confessing his sins. 
Because other people weren't as thorough as him. And so you had to confess that too. And the priest would be exhausted of Martin Luther's thoroughness. And he was so stricken with guilt and the burden was on his back. He was, he just worked himself silly down to the bone in order to be right with God. And as soon as he walked out of the confessional, guess what, what he would do? He'd start sweating bullets because he's probably going to sin in the next moment. And what if I die and someone's not there to perform last rites on me? Catholic term. When he was, um, quote-unquote, ready to be a priest after two years of studying, um, he was placed in charge of leading a mass, and his whole family came, and all his uh, other relatives and neighbors and things around, and he was so nervous and awestruck of the reality that right now I'm about to lift the bread, which is, in his, in his understanding at that time, the body of Christ. And I'm about to lift the blood with the, the, the cup, which is the blood of Jesus. And I'm about to go directly to God. And he was so trembling that he whispered to the priest next to him, I want to run away. And the, the priest that's recorded, he said, uh, something along the lines of just, just, just do it, right? Like just keep on performing the act of priesthood; it'll be fine, right? But his heart was was uh, understood rightly that he could sin at any moment and be presumptuous to come before God. These are the feelings that non Christians feel because they have not been, uh, their sins have not been put as far as the east is from the west. It hasn't been cleansed or wiped away. Uh, sadly, these are still some of the feelings that Christians still deal with. Guilt over their sins, because they don't, they don't um, take advantage of their immediate access to God through Jesus Christ. But friends, brothers and sisters in the Lord, you have a peace with God because Christ has forgiven your sins and granted you repentance and faith so that you can be able to respond to him. This is the gospel, and it is beautiful and meant to be cherished. This week, Monday morning, you don't have to wake up with a big weight on your back. You can be free, guilt-free, because you have peace with God. That's the first thing. The next one is this. We have a freedom to love well. What's the implication of faith alone? Well, you can love now. What does that mean? Well, before, if you were operating under the system of faith plus works earns you the right to uh, know God and to get to heaven, every good work that you perform at the core of it was selfish. It was self-serving. You were on the throne and you were striving in order to get you to heaven. There are a lot of nice people out there that are doing nice works on the surface. But the scriptures say that all those works are rubbish. They're trash 
They don't weigh out at the end. God doesn't say, oh, he did more good than bad. I'm going to take him and I'm going to overlook the bad. The gospel is that God sent his son to deal with the bad and grant you the ability now to do good and to fulfill the law. But if you operate under this good works plus faith, this is such a tiresome way to live. And you can't love genuinely. Galatians 5, 6 says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count, circumcision, excuse me, counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Some might identify with this, that Westminster Confession, chapter 11, paragraph 2, faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is alone the instrument of justification. Yet, and listen how they, they dealt with this, yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but works by love. So, friends, uh, meaning God gave you faith, so now you are free to love others. Solomon said, this is a, a common verse in our house, better open rebuke than hidden love. This week, don't hide your love. Why? Faith alone. You're given faith. Number three, walk in good works. Walk in good works. Again, sometimes it's a little scary to use those terms in a Protestant church where we're claiming faith alone. But Scripture calls us, if you have faith, well, go for it. Do good works. Not to earn your affection from the Lord. He already gave that to you. But now, go for it. So what does this mean for you today? I'd say... Tonight, sit down with your spouse, sit down with your family, pray together, and go, Lord, where would you lead us this week? What would you have for us? Theologically, Ephesians 2.10, Lord, what are the works that you have laid out before us that we could walk in them this week? And watch and wait and allow the Holy Spirit to bring up names and, and other various ways to serve Him. And guess what? Slap that on your calendar. Put it in your iCal, in your Google Cal. Pursue this person this week. Bring a meal here. Do this. Write a note here. It's a beautiful thing. Dave mentioned that our, our beloved Barb is dying. She got the call that, that she has a few more weeks to live, a few more months to live. I think a great work as a result of your faith would be to take a note back there and take it home and take some time to jot her a note so that she can hear from you that you love her and include scripture so that she can hear from God before she meets him. And we're grieving this. We love her. But this would be just an example um, I was talking to her this week, actually, and this is just to encourage you. When she found out, uh, we decided, um, hey, Barb, this is going to be a, a tough journey. How about you pick out a fighter verse, a verse that you can fight well with, that you can walk with God 
and make him, uh, his name and renown more than just your, your cancer. That you can just, all the way to your last days, that you can speak of him. And she chose Isaiah 41.10. says, fear not, for I am with you, which is the most beautiful news in the Christian life. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And God's doing that for her right now. It is, um, uh, it is sobering to hear. We all know from Psalm 90 that our days are, are numbered. It is especially sobering to hear, though, when a doctor says your days are numbered, isn't it? Um, and I think this could be just an example for us, a great reminder. Uh, friends, all of our days are numbered. And God, what would God have me do? And the answer would be that by faith, he would have you pursue good works for his glory. So pray for her and walk by faith this week. And last, number four, and this is a, a communal uh, message for us. Oftentimes it's, it's easy to fall in the, in the trap of a preacher just saying, so you, you, you as an individual, but what about us? What about us as a church? How does faith alone and the understanding of true saving faith, how does it affect a church? And here would be the fourth one. Ready? Uh, be charitable with others, not chari. Um, this is how uh, Michael Lawrence in his book Conversion puts it, and I just really like it. Uh, we give this book out to every person that goes through our, our membership class. Um, we really like this book. Um, when we first planted this church, we uh, sought to especially establish two doctrines. One, the inerrancy of Scripture. So if we're not like biblical, what are we doing? Like, what are we talking about here? And the other is the biblical view of conversion. What does it mean to be a Christian? And if we can define what a Christian is and where a Christian gets its source, ad fontes, back to the source, I think we're going to establish this church on good grounds. The thing is, once you understand true saving faith, that, if, that faith alone is never alone, churches can sometimes see this horse and they can run up on it and they can jump up on its saddle and fall to the other end, um, reacting in a chary type manner towards others. Um, they, re they respond to others by way of like, saying, well, faith alone, but faith is never alone. Let's uh, up your works, buddy. Let's go. Come on. Your fruit, in my opinion, not big enough. Right? That would be a measurable thing. Or, um, hey, you're not growing fast enough for me. And so both time and size, I don't see it. And, and, and we get a little short with each other. And we fall off that other end of the horse. And so today our encouragement would be, hey, let's, let's get on that saddle. Let's understand faith rightly. Let's not cheapen it, but also let's be patient with others. Allow them to grow in Christ-likeness as they walk by faith. So what qualifies you to be a part of this process?
What does it mean to be on that horse, right? And we would say, your faith. <laughs> That's it. Your faith. So this means that there are in the church, if you have faith, this means that the immature are welcome, the imperfect, the weak, the wounded, all are welcome as they bear fruit, no matter how size, no matter the timing, as they keep with repentance. So friends, and this is our call this morning, if you confess with your mouth and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord, not like the demons believe, agreeing, but if you believe, if you admit that you're a sinner, believe in his name and commit to following him with all your heart. This is saving faith. And saving faith moves, one of the first steps in obedience in the Christian life is baptism. Saving faith moves towards baptism, which proclaims your faith not only to God, but to others. It identifies you with Christ and his suffering, and it's the entrance into the community as you express your faith and hope in Christ. You're saying, I want to grow in him. I've got faith, and faith moves. And so I want to do it, and I want to I want to invite you guys in. I need help in growing. I'm a Christian now. And this is what Christians do. They go under and they come up. That was my old life. It's my new life. I'm looking to him now and I'm leaving this. So if you've confessed your mouth, with your mouth and believe in Jesus and you're pursuing baptism, then come on and join the church. And tell people, and tell the leadership, let it be known to all, and then you belong. You're, you're, you're a part of the body of Christ. You're a member. But it is equally important to say that the unrepentant ones are the ones that don't belong. Because that is not consistent with saving faith. Unrepentant as a pattern, a trajectory of your whole life. That doesn't mean we don't love them. It just means that we love them enough to tell them the truth about the gospel and the nature of saving faith. So sometimes this looks like tough love. Other times, the listener, they, they, they might respond with, that feels harsh. But other times, friends, when they're told, when they're actually loved, they might respond like this. Oh, no one ever told me that. How come no one ever shared that with me? I, I, deep down, I've wanted to hear that. Thank you. Why not? I don't know. We were all afraid. <laughs> Scary. We don't want to offend you. Offend me? I was going to hell. Why didn't you just tell me? This is the communal aspect of faith alone, saving faith. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Micah chapter 7. That person who just said, oh, why didn't you tell me? 
Why don't you tell me of the beauties of the gospel? What are the beauties of the gospel? Besides just saying Jesus. Micah actually does a really nice job sharing the beauties of the gospel. And I'd like this to be a responsive time. Let me read verses 18 through 20. And these will be our our verses that prepare our hearts for communion. And so we'll close our time in worship. But the first question that it asks is, who is like you? After we read through it, um, let's hear from the church in what is God like and what has he done? We'll spend a little bit of time sharing that, worshiping, and then we'll take the bread and the cup together, okay? Here's 18 through 20. Who is like you, God? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all your sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So let's hear from you. What do you love about the uniqueness of God in this, in this passage? What is God like? Which, which passage or phrase was meaningful to you? Just go ahead and speak where you're sitting. Yeah. Good. What else? That's right. Mm-hmm. Don't be shy. He pardons our iniquities. Amen. That's what he's like. What else? There's a bunch of them in there. Amen. Mm-hmm. His steadfast love. Yeah. He will try to put his hand up there. Yeah. So we truth Jacob, we all truth Jacob. That's right. That's right. Anymore? Yeah, that's right. So, Father, we love you, and we thank you for what you are like. There is none like you. We are certainly not like you. There's no other gods like you. You pardon iniquity. That's not not just some nice concept, but you've taken our sins over this past week. And when we confess them, you pardon. You extinguish. You take your foot and you trample on it. 
and you forget it, you forgive it. And so, Lord, as your people, your saints, your sons and daughters um, come before you guilt-free, with peace, because they have Christ, Lord, I pray that you would free them of their, their guilt and their, their iniquities that they've been carrying, and that they would find forgiveness in treasuring Jesus above all. May they look to you and away from their sins. So when you're ready, when you come take the bread and the cup, we'll celebrate the body and the blood of Jesus together.